U.S. President Harry Truman prosecuted the war to its conclusion, finishing his predecessor's near-impossible task. Then, with bitter irony, history reversed his role as anchor for the Second World War into lead for the Third. As the trilogy approached its near-miraculous end decades later, one could hear an echo of a Truman slogan, Education is our first line of defense. In the 1980s cartoon, G.I. Joe, that averred, Knowing is half the battle. Both aphorisms are twigs coming off the knowledge is power branch. And the trunk itself? A tree of the knowledge of good and evil, with roots stretching to the genesis. More recently, our physicists have been informing us of hard limits to our knowledge, uncertainty principles, incompleteness theorems, buttressing Socrates' statement that the only true wisdom consists in knowing that you know nothing. Still, bounded knowledge is a poor excuse for apathy, and in 1951 Truman signed into existence an agency whose purpose was to prepare American citizens for nuclear war. Knowledge is not only key to power, it is the citadel of human freedom, he said. In this 27th episode of Making Sense, Jeff Snyder reveals that Truman's agency's most iconic result was that of a cartoon turtle named Bert. It may sound startlingly silly to the 21st century ear, but educating citizens to turtle up, to duck and cover at the first instance of a flash, made sense at that particular time. At least, up to the point when weapons and thus circumstances evolved. Similarly, the Federal Reserve's monetary policies made sense up to the point when money and thus circumstances evolved, which, coincidentally enough, began in Truman's time. Hello everyone, in today's show we're going to look at how the U.S. government wanted to prepare its citizens for nuclear war. We're also going to go to Brazil and China to try to get a better understanding of the monetary order. And lastly, we have identified possibly a suspect from July that may have inflected the reopening boom from V-shaped to sort of more meandering upside down U. This show is called Making Sense. It's a Eurodollar University production. My name is Emil Kalinowski, and the we is Jeff Snyder is joining me. He's the head of global research for Alhambra Investments. Jeff, I'm really excited about this first article that we're going to talk about. How are you? Good. And I think we're going to start with nuclear war, so it couldn't possibly get any hotter than that, right? I mean, <laughs> oh, that's good, Jeff. Thermonuclear right. devices and H-bombs. Let's, let's get it kicked right off. <laughs> what a way to start the weekend. And people say that we're doom and gloomers. But why shouldn't we start with nuclear war? You know what? Let's look at it from the perspective of something fuzzy and cuddly, and that is Bert the turtle. So, Jeff, uh, today is, what is today? Today is the, what day is it? I don't know what day today it is. Today is the 18th. The 18th. And so today yeah. at Real Clear Markets, they posted your essay, and the essay is titled, Powell as Bert, Duck, and Cover. And the short essay of yours is about Bert the Turtle. And I guess we gave it away. It has something to do with thermonuclear war. But I thought you were going towards maybe 
You are branching out from the monetary, from the mathematical, towards children toys. Is that maybe what what snapped, Jeff? Why did you finally want to go into children's toys and merchandise? Well, I think there's a pretty good analogy here, and, and it really it gets back to we'll, we'll get into this in a little bit, but it's really about. What do authorities do in the face of the extreme, right? Nuclear war is probably the most extreme any government will ever have to face. And it's kind of, you know, it seems like almost a preposterous position because what are you going to do if the atom bombs start falling? Really, what, what, what's the point? And I think that's really the point is for a government, it's not really about what happens if the war happens. It's what do you do in advance of it? And how do you counteract the potential negative forces that can come about just from the potential of a downside so, so big and so large? And, of course, you know, given the way, what we're talking about in our show, Your Dollar University, there's a monetary analogy that goes along with it. That's right. And so it seems overwhelming and impossible, but you just can't sit back and let it happen. You've got to do something. And on January 12th, 1951, 16 months after the Soviet Union first tested their nuclear weapon, U.S. President Harry Truman created the Federal Civil Defense Administration. Tell us about it and Project East River. Well, the F FCDA was created to essentially, you know, try to figure out what we could, what could we do to the internal American public about the prospect of any kind of future war that would involve nuclear weapons. As you pointed out, the Soviet Union detonated their first atomic bomb in 1949, and that set off a wave of not quite, you know, but low, not quite panic, but a low rumbling boil of, of you know, apathy and even fatalism about, well, you know, if these bombs start dropping, what's the point? It's, it's going to destroy everything. And the government recognized that, look, you can't have that. I mean, we've got to be prepared in some, some respects for any kind of contingency, because, you know, to not do so would be even worse. And so they, they created the, F the Federal Civil Defense Administration. And one of its first acts was to commission a study from what uh, the Associated Universities Incorporated, which is, I believe, eight Ivy League school, a consortium of eight Ivy League schools. And they gathered together the, you know, top scientists, you know, <laughs> not in the uh, Indiana Jones version of, you know, top men, but actual real top scientists who, who looked at a potential nuclear war and thought, well, what do we need to do? I mean, how, how, what does the military need to do to, to reduce the damage? What, does, what can civilians do to increase their chances of survival? And that's what became known as Project East River. And Project East River identified right off the bat this fatalism, this apathy among the American public as potentially the biggest stumbling block to you know, conducting uh, any kind of conflagration where nuclear weapons were involved. And, you know, the idea was, look, we got to get the public to realize that, you know, not everybody's going to die here, that you can survive, that, you know, these things can be done. And so what, what came, uh, what, what a major, um, a major finding of the study was something they, that later became to be called emotion management, get people thinking that there are ways that they could prepare themselves to survive uh, a potential catastrophic scenario, even a catastrophic scenario. Emotions management, survivor's euphoria, and expectations policy. I know there's a Venn diagram where we'll find some overlap with all of those. Let me read a quote from the final report that you identified of Project East River from 1952 that speaks to that fatalism. Quote, the average American citizen is not greatly concerned over the manner 
in which he is picked up after he has been killed, but he is much interested in increasing his chances of survival. First of all, I really appreciate the fact that the, it's so straightforward and not covered in jargon or doesn't take a position. It's very clear, very stark. And therefore, how do you overcome that? You have a cartoon turtle. Right. If you believe you're going to be slaughtered, then it doesn't matter what you do today. And of course, you, I, think, I think our audience is astute enough to start seeing the analogy work out in markets and the Fed and all that stuff. But what the FDCA came up with was they were going to produce educational films, among other things. And there was a series of nine of them, which were, I mean, I think one of them was um, uh, firefighting techniques for households or something like that, you know, the kind of things that, you know, we think about, like, this is ridiculous. And of course, the most famous one was Bert the Turtle. And Bert the Turtle taught uh, essentially school children to, I think what people will remember, people our age and people older, baby boomers in particular, will remember duck and cover. Duck and cover was the famous, uh, you know, air raid drill technique where when the, your teacher yelled drop, you got underneath your desk and covered your head with your hands. And that would get you, that would allow you to survive a nuclear impact. And it sounds completely ridiculous to people in the modern age because I mean, it's a nuclear weapon. What good is it to be under your desk holding your head underneath your hands? But at the time, in the, you know, the early 1950s, you know, nuclear weapons were not these mega weapons that we have today. They were more like the, you know, the, the bombs that were dropped in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. So there was some minor validity to if you have school children in school and, and a small yield nuclear weapon goes off somewhere near them, their biggest danger is not the nuclear blast. It's the blast blowing windows in and so you know, flying glass shards and things like that, duck and cover might actually be somewhat helpful and useful. It's only later, and that, not that much later, I think, I think the, the first H-bomb came about in 1954, and then, of course, the proliferation of nuclear uh, thermonuclear weapons thereafter, that's when duck and cover really became an object of derision because it was absurd. I mean, it, a, a thermonuclear weapon going off, duck and cover is not going to do anything. But yet, you know, the Federal Civil Defense Administration and Bert the Turtle soldiered onward, even under the, uh, even under the, uh, the new nuclear threat which, that was so much bigger. So the idea was just to get people thinking that, okay, you could do something positive to help your chances of survival. And if you think even remotely that you'll be able to survive, you might act positively before anything bad actually happens. That's emotion management. Well, some segues are better than others. Let us segue to, let us tie the two concepts together by looking at what happened one year ago. So today's the 18th. One year ago and two days ago, what happened? Well, I think it was the equivalent of the Cuban Missile Crisis, right? We had a September repo rumble, September of 2019, right in the middle of the month, right at the bottleneck. All of a sudden, this major disruption in the repo market. And it was such a big disruption that for the first time since maybe 2008, you know, the word repo was entering the mainstream financial press. And even just the regular financial, even the regular mainstream press, people were talking about the repo market. I mean, what the hell's going on here? Something big must have happened. Even the Federal Reserve is being forced into doing something it doesn't want to do. And so, you know, here's this, this thing that happened. And, and really, a year later, um, nobody's really offered much as, by way of explanation, official explanations for what happened. I, I believe that the Federal Reserve would prefer to keep it that way. Just everybody to go back to sleep and not think about it. The Cuban Missile Crisis, one of those books behind me is called 
averting the final failure. And it's based on the recordings that Kennedy had, their audio recordings of his deliberations. And it reads like the most incredible Hollywood thriller. But it was real life. It was unbelievable, that whole sequence. I recommend if anyone wanted to read a Hollywood thriller, espionage thriller, just read what happened during the Cuban Missile Crisis. Let me get you back to the repo failure. So the repo market, it's an interbank funding market, very important. You've called it the ultimate backstop as the real central banks, per se, of, uh, of international capital flows. And last year, something went wrong. And a lot of people will say, but the, there's two misconceptions and I want to bring them out right now. The first one is that the Federal Reserve then stepped in and started conducting repo operations, taking over from the private market. You've written numerous times, that's not what they did. And people are confused about that. Why is what the Fed did last year not really repo market operations? Because it had nothing to do with the repo market. The Fed was not in the repo market offering bank reserves to anybody else in the repo market. The Federal Reserve conducted off-market transactions with only primary dealers that mimicked the, the, uh, what was essentially a repo trade. In other words, primary dealers had to put up collateral in order to exchange and get a, a loan of bank reserves back from the Fed. That had nothing to do with the repo market. It mimicked the repo trade, but it wasn't in the repo market. What the Fed was attempting to do was think, well, if I give the primary dealers some more bank reserves, they'll then use those bank reserves in the repo market. They'll go into the repo market. So it's already one step removed from repo. And again, it's, it's, it's basically the same thing with the Fed. Everything to them looks like when all you have is a hammer, everything's nails, right? So it's always bank reserves, always bank reserves. So they're, their explanation, or at least their, what, they're, what they're implying by these repo operations, was that the repo market, like everything else, must have been short of bank reserves. And so if we offer bank reserves to the primary dealers, the primary dealers will be satisfied. They'll offer their own liquidity to the repo market, and everyone will be happy and go home, and go home satisfied. It's remarkable how it's the exact same story that they had been uh, trying to tell everyone since 2008. There's not enough credit in the economy. We need to get the economy moving. Therefore, we will give reserves to the primary dealers, and then they will go out into the rest of the market. They didn't do that broadly, and then they tried it again in this narrower interbank market. And again, it didn't work. It's remarkable. how. It yeah, and Emil, that's, and that's a really good point, because if you really look at what the Federal Reserve does, or any central bank for that matter, it's exactly the same thing. How do we give the bank system bank reserves? So QE, repo operations, all of these other programs are essentially that. They're different ways of doing the same thing. So the Fed is trying to convince you that there's various types of QEs and each one's better than the last when each of them are exactly what you said. How do we give bank reserves to the banking system? That's all they ever are. That's all they are. And then, but think, all right, our time is short, but it just obviously, and I don't know, the, the, obviously the, the bottle... Uh, bottleneck is the dealers don't want to do it anymore. Let us move right. on. If the dealers don't want to do it as they prove that's, you know, that was the key element of last September's repo rumble was that dealers faced with skyrocketing repo rates, which were a shortage of liquidity in the repo markets. 
instead of chasing those skyrocketing repo rates, which is what money dealing is supposed to be about, right? You're supposed to be making money in dealing money. So there was enormous profits. You know, a repo rate in the double digits could make your whole damn year for your desk. Why weren't they chasing those profits? In fact, it was what we call backwards elasticity. Backwards elasticity is when the price rises, the dealers offer even less liquidity. And that's really all about, you know, you see the repo rate rise and rise and rise, and you think something must be wrong. I'm going to get out, out, out. You can pull further to the sideline, not go into the market like you're supposed to do. So it was a very clear indication that something was really wrong and that it faced with something really wrong in the marketplace, dealers were going to get out of it, which was, that's the message the Fed should have taken away. Well, not that there was a shortage of bank reserves, that there was a shortage of willingness on the part of dealers to step in in exactly the way we need them to. And of course, that leads us into obviously what happened in March when the real deal finally had. Because as I said last year, many times, what happened in September was nothing more than a dress rehearsal. Well, the real deal, the real play, the real, the real show actually showed up in March. And guess what happened? For a period of a little more than two weeks, money dealers did exactly what they had done in September, only on a much, much larger and more destructive scale. Second most popular misconception is that there were too many treasuries in the market at that time, and that's what caused the repo meltdown. What do you say to that? Yeah, and I think that you know most of the people who used to say that no longer say that because it's kind of obvious that it was never the problem. I mean, we talked about this before, and I've written about it extensively. If there were too, I mean, if there were too many treasures being held by primary dealers, they could have sold them to the public at any time because the price of those treasuries was at an increasing rate, an increasing level. So, would, if 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 holding treasuries had ever been a problem for any primary dealer, they had a very profitable option of selling them easily to the financial public that wanted any number of them at almost any price. So the idea that there's too many treasuries doesn't, doesn't match up with actual market prices. Auction, non-market, secondary market, whatever, whatever price you want to use, the treasury market has said there's demand for it across all levels. And there's no reason to suspect, no reason to believe that, that dealers, therefore, are, not, are doing anything other than choosing to hold treasuries because they could easily sell them at any amount, at any price, at any time. And so if they're holding them, it's because they want to hold them. And that leads us into why the hell would they want to hold them? Well, here's a, tell me, answer that question. Well, I guess it's obvious because there's a disorder in place. But here's another curiosity I have that I want to ask you about. The Fed was not buying U.S. Treasury securities across the board. They were buying very specific kinds of U.S. Treasury securities. Tell the audience which ones and why it mattered. Yeah, in response to September, last September's repo problem, there was not just these quote-unquote repo operations that were not repo operations. The other part of it, maybe even the more important part of it from the Fed's perspective, was their not QE program. Remember, they made a big deal about how this was not QE but it was sort of QE. We we're going to buy some treasuries, but we don't want you to believe it's QE because we don't think the problem's that big, right? And really, it's, it gets back to what we just said. What the Fed was intending to do was how do you raise the level of bank reserves for the banking system, but do it on a more permanent basis? 
The repo operations were a temporary increase in bank reserves, where a QE or asset purchase program is a permanent increase in bank reserves. So that's really what the Fed wanted to do, was they wanted to say this repo problem was only a small, temporary, local repo problem, and therefore it didn't require a full QE, but yet we need, to, we need to raise the permanent level of bank reserves, therefore we have to do something that looks like QE. And so to distinguish this not QE from a regular QE, they said, well, we'll just buy treasury bills and we'll stick to just buying treasury bills so that the public knows that this is a technical monetary issue and not a full stimulus because we don't think that the, the country needs a, or the, the economy needs a full stimulus. And I said at the time, numerous times, it was the biggest mistakes they could possibly make because what they were doing was intentionally stripping the repo system of its most valuable, most usable, most demanded collateral possible. They were leaving it in even worse shape after September when dealers had already told them, look, we're on edge. We're going to jump at the first sign of trouble. And then we're going to jump because there's a shortage of collateral in the system. And now you're taking even more of the best collateral. And of course, as we saw in March, what happened? It all went into the T-bills. It all went, the entire liquidations globally matched up and aligned perfectly with everything we saw in T-bills where everybody was jumping to find T-bills because on-the-run treasuries were the only usable collateral in some spaces. So the Fed made an enormous mistake in this not QE program by making things even worse heading into March. First of all, they didn't heed the warning from September what dealers were going to do, and then they stripped the system of T-bills at the worst possible time. And so then when we did find, finally experience the shock, I think it made everything that much worse. Jeff, there are at least two kinds of people commenting, maybe three on the Fed. Uh, there's the people that believe they're doing a good job. There's the people that are saying they're not doing a good job. And then there's also a very big contingent of people who say it's a conspiracy, a cabal, uh, that there's evil intent. And in October of last year, you wrote that, that what, was, what you just explained, that it's difficult or that you struggle with explaining how it's not a conspiracy, how... You, you know what I'm saying, that in your own yeah. words, you were saying they took out the most liquid form of collateral from the system, harming it terribly. How, and it's so easy to think that's a conspiracy. Yeah, it's, it's hard to believe that, they, that either they're gr that, that really stupid because they did the, the worst possible thing. What, if you were actually sitting back last year and thinking, okay, we're going to have a shock in March. How can I make it the absolute worst it can possibly be? Well, I know. I'll just buy all the treasury bills. I'll take the treasury bills out of circulation. And that if we have a shock, shock in March, that'll make things absolutely the worst they can possibly be. And so you have to wonder sometimes, are they really, are they really that evil? I know a lot of people will say, yeah, they are. But no, they're not. And we addressed this before when we talked about was Aristotle an idiot. No, Aristotle was not an idiot. Jay Powell's not an idiot. Ben Bernanke, you're not an idiot. Not only are they not morons, they're also not evil. They, un they understand the system as it was 60 years ago. That's really all. They have not caught up to the modern monetary system. And they believe that emotion management is the way that they actually conduct monetary policy. Because if you actually pin Jay Powell down tomorrow, under oath, under pain of long prison sentence, he would admit to you, we have no idea how to define money. We have no idea how the system uses money. Therefore, our job is to try to convince the banking system through bank, and re bank reserves to act in a way that we want the banking system to act because we freaking have no idea what they're doing. 
That's what Jay Powell would say. They're not evil. They're not stupid. They're just haven't caught up to the modern system. And it, it really, it, it's, it's, again, getting back to what we talked about at the beginning here, Bert the Turtle, that's really all bank reserves are. They're a way to signal to everybody to duck and cover. When you see something big happen, like last September's repo rumble, let's give out bank reserves and everybody will assume the duck and cover position and they'll, they'll be happy. They'll think that, okay, now I can survive something if it actually happens, which is, you know, in the modern thermonuclear repo age, it's absolutely ridiculous and, and you know, it's, it's, it's utterly absurd because it's, their bank reserves program was, was for a different time. It was for a different place, for a different world that doesn't, doesn't any longer exist. And that's really the key to understanding both what the Federal Reserve does and why it does what it does and also why it never succeeds. Jeff, a little bit off topic, last question of this section. Whenever I go to a espionage thriller movie like Tenet, uh, they talk about preventing World War III. Whenever that comes up, I always bristle because I consider the Cold War as World War III. What do you think? Am I wrong or should we consider that as World War III already having been fought over some 50 years? Yeah, I think you're right, Emil. Not only that, I mean, to the people who were subjected to the proxy wars fought between the United States and the Soviet Union, it didn't look very cold to them, did it? Hmm. So, I mean, yeah, it was it was a continuous conflict, and it was it was a low intensity conflict. There were no nuclear strikes or anything like that, but that doesn't mean it was any less of a war and a conflict. And it was in, it was in some ways an existential conflict. It's just one of my things. One of my things, Jeff. All right, so that segment was sponsored 100% unofficially by George Gammon's recent interview of Jeff Snyder and Lynn Alden. Anyone that's watching the show that hasn't seen that interview, I highly recommend it. Just go to YouTube and search George Gammon, Lynn Alden, and Jeff Snyder. You're going to love that show. I know I did. Jeff, that was a great job. Let us start a new segment of the show by talking about the monetary order and usually we look through the lens of advanced economy money centers. What's Japan doing? What's Europe doing? What's Washington doing? We're going to start in Brazil and also go to Beijing. And we're going to use them to tell us what's happening in the monetary order. And for readers that want to, uh, that want to follow along, they can do so with uh, an article from September 11th at Alhambra Investments. The title is the contingent hole in China's Brazil dollar strategy. Jeff, the audience may be surprised to know that you write about Brazil pretty, pretty regularly. Why is that? Well, I always have an eye on emerging markets because they can tell us something important about the wider dollar system because, frankly, they're the most susceptible to problems in it. So if we see Brazil or you know, South Africa or any of the other ones, Russia even, if, they, if the currency markets or their internal, internal monetary systems start to act up uh, in, in certain ways, that can tell us something important about what's going on in the Eurodollar system. And remember, we have to keep in mind, we cannot see the Eurodollar. We cannot see what's going on in that. We can't directly observe this vast offshore monetary space. So what we're really trying to do is to identify all of the things that the Eurodollar disturbs. If the Eurodollar system is acting, if, if, if those things are disturbed in a certain way, we can reasonably infer from them that there must be something going on in the global monetary system that we need to pay attention to. 
So one of the lessons of the 1997-98 Asian financial crisis, which you often refer to as sort of the prequel of the Eurodollar crisis in 2007 and 8, and then the three sequels we've had since then, one of those mainstream lessons was have a lot of reserves so that if disorder comes knocking on your door, you'll be able to manage it. But you give two reasons in your article why that's the theory, but in practice, that's not actually the case. So tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, and I, you know, just to go back, I think the Asian financial crisis, the Asian flu, as a lot of people called it back then, it was a regional dollar shortage, whereas in the, in the post-2007 world, we have global dollar shortage. So, so we had you know, a, a small pocket of the system in 97 and 98 experienced a hiccup, which for you know, people, places like uh, you know, uh, Asian Tigers, Thailand, Taiwan, Thailand, those places like that, Russia too included, um, it, was, it was a major event. But for the rest of the global system, it was sort of like kind of curiosity that sort of got lost into the dot-com era. And so, you know, we're always looking at what did, what, you know, how do, how do uh, various countries respond to what they, should, what they should be doing versus what they're actually doing. And then, as you pointed out, the textbook approach was, okay, we could end up with a dollar shortage position in the way that we seem to be able to combat that, or at least in theory, is we build up our, our level of reserves. Not, and let's be clear here, we're not talking about the Fed's bank reserves, we're talking about foreign reserves held in, in foreign countries, in the, most often in the hands of the central bank. And so the idea was that you build up a lot of foreign reserves so that if you ever get hit like in 97 and 98 with a, a dollar problem that causes your currency to start to crash, you can liquidate those reserves, move them into the marketplace, manipulate the currency, su- actually supply dollars that the market isn't, isn't supplying, and that'll smooth everything over until things go back to normal. And that's really the idea here. That the idea is always about buying time. How do we smooth off the rough patches to get it to the other side? And th- because it's always assumed, always assumed, that these are temporary problems that, that will be uh, recoverable on the other side, that nobody ever stops and thinks, what if this is a chronic issue? What if this is a structural problem? That's not in the textbook either. So the, so the textbook says, Build up your reserves, use them on these short-term basis to smooth over rough patches, and you'll be fine. You'll be golden. And so there are two problems when you start selling those foreign exchange reserves. One, you announce to the whole world, we don't feel confident regarding our internal system being able to acquire reserve currencies. So that's not good. So now everyone's I think it's aware. Even, it's even worse than that, right? I mean, it's, hey... We've got a huge problem here. It's such a big problem. I have to sell reserves. It's, it's not even confirming that, there, that there's an issue. It's confirming that it's such a big issue. Central banks are actually doing something about it. And that's, They're ducking you know, and covering. <laughs> exactly. And so, you know, something's wrong. But then, too. We're, proving, we're showing you something. We're painting a target on our back. Something's really wrong. We're selling our reserves. <laughs> but, but then, too, you give kind of an accounting Example and tell me if I've got this one right. So you've got you've got a central bank, they have foreign exchange reserves, that's an asset. And in order to help, what they do is they sell that asset, they get US dollars back in return, that's still an asset, so no change. But then they exchange those US dollars for local currency 
And that means they're pulling the local currency out of the economy, creating a local currency shortage. Do I have that correct or am I wrong? No, I think you're missing some of the accounting is even simpler than that. Good. Now we go, let's go back to the textbook theory. The textbook theory is that you have to build up reserves. And the way that you build up reserves is that it's not you. The central bank has to build up reserves mm-hmm. or the, you know, monetary, whoever the monetary authority is, fiscal authority, whatever. And so as dollars are flowing in, because that's what they do for, for merchandise purposes or financial flows, whatever you want to call them, hot money, dollars flow in, a significant portion of those end up in the hands of the central bank. The central bank uses them not just as their foreign reserve insurance policy, but they also, because they're on the central bank's balance sheet, they also become the monetary basis of the internal currency system. Because in a lot of cases, Brazil is one, China is another, those foreign reserves end up being the vast majority of assets in the central bank hand. And so on the other side of the assets from central, uh, the central bank balance sheet is the money side, bank reserves, currency, all that good stuff. So as assets are coming in from outside the, uh, these local countries, the central bank builds up its reserve stockpile. It is also building up the monetary base of the internal system. That's, what, that's what's balancing out currency and bank reserves and other forms of monetary liquidity in the local currency. So if you have the opposite situation where dollars are no longer flowing in, in fact, they're flowing out and it's becoming a problem, you have to sell off these foreign assets because that's what the textbook says. So you're reducing the level of assets on the central bank balance sheet. It's a, and therefore, the, the money side, the liability side, has to be reduced by the same amount, except on the money side, liability side, you're reducing internal currency. Think about quantitative tightening in, 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 actual, in actual reality, not just a theoretical way that the Fed did it, but that's really what happens in these other foreign countries. Quantitative tightening that's brought about by reducing the, asset, the, the level of assets on the uh, central bank's balance sheet. And that's really what Brazil was writing about. And the, the, there was a paper, an academic paper that was published in 2013 that said, we don't want to do that. We realize that this is kind of a dangerous thing to do. The textbook says we should use our reserves, but you know we realize that if we use our reserves, number one, people are going to know we're using reserves. Number two, that's going to constrict the internal money supply for our country. We don't want to do that. So let's, let's try to do other ways. And that's what I call the Brazil strategy, because what the Brazilians did up until 2013, when they thought their currency was going to be too strong, and they tried to weaken it because, you know, the Fed was printing money, the dollar was going to crash, all that, all that crap. They decided they were going to go use something called, well, they used essentially a form of swap. It wasn't exactly a currency swap. And we don't need to get into the details here. But they, 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 they stayed in the background. They stayed in the shadows trying to manipulate what the local banks did in terms of their dollar activities, but essentially subsidizing their dollar borrowing. And what that supposedly had the effect of doing was it allowed them to use the banking system to manipulate the currency exchange rate in the way they wanted to without getting into their reserve piles, without disturbing their, um, their internal monetary policies and, and enacting an involuntary quantitative tightening. And then you identify a Beijing corollary, a Chinese corollary. So that's what they were doing in Brazil. Eventually what happened was they ran out of time, right? Because we're no longer in an era of globalization where the pie is expanding and money's becoming plentiful. So buying time makes sense because it's not a chronic problem. Now on the other side of 2007, 2008, 
it is a chronic problem. The pie is not expanding as rapidly. And therefore, very good chance that you'll run out of time. They did, and their currency just crashed. Well, they, and you know, now, they ran out of time and room. It got to be, you know, yeah, they wanted to stay in the shadows, but it got to be so much of a problem, so obvious of a problem, that the love, the number of outstanding of these uh, currency, lot currency, currency swaps, was over a hundred billion. I mean, it was such a massive position that there was no, no. I mean, you couldn't ignore it. I mean, the public ignores it, and the Federal Reserve ignores it, and everybody else ignores it. But anyone operating close to Brazil or in the actual system, you know, they knew that it was gonna. They knew what was going on. You can't just hide a uh, hundred billion in swaps and think, well, okay, everything's great. And as you pointed out, you know, they did this for a year. The level got to be a hundred billion. And what did that buy the, the Banco de Brazil? What did it buy Brazilian authorities? Essentially uh, a slightly falling currency, not even a rising currency, but a slightly falling currency. And once the jig was up, once the game was you know, called and they stopped doing it because they got to their limit, as you pointed out, Emil, the, the Brazilian real just crashed. It just utterly crashed. And in many ways, the Brazilians have never recovered from that. And that was, you know, we're, that's six years ago. I mean, six years with a devastating depression and no recovery from it. The Chinese corollary. So you're not saying it's a similar solution because the Chinese are doing something different. And we're not quite sure what they're doing because it's not quite showing up the same way though you suspect something similar is happening. Can you tell us what's happening in Beijing? Well, while the Brazilians were carrying out this Brazilian strategy in swaps back in 2014 and 15, starting in 2013, the Chinese were doing the textbook approach, right? In the middle of 2014, the Chinese did what they were told to do. They started selling reserves. Those reserves started disappearing from the Chinese bank, central bank's balance sheet, which led to a massive constriction in RMB, especially in bank reserves, but also physical currency. Physical currency was, uh, circulation was restrained. Growth in currency was restrained much more than it probably needed to be. Bank reserves actually contracted to a significant degree for the first time in, in modern Chinese history. I'm talking about in RMB, in, in renminbi. Because they had the dollar problem, they were trying to solve it by mobilizing the reserves, selling the reserves as they were told to by the economics textbook, by all the textbook lessons learned from 97 and 98, causing the internal monetary constriction that they tried to offset with these reserve requirement cuts and let the banking system supply more of the reserves, and it ended in a total disaster. And oh, by the way, the Chinese currency crashed too. So it didn't, it didn't work any better than any other solution. So now fast forward to 2018, and we have this, the fourth dollar problem in, in, of the last decade, uh, decade plus, and the Chinese seem to be doing something different. They're obviously no longer selling reserves like they, like they had before in 2014, 15, and 16, but they must be doing something because, as we've pointed out before, the level of foreign reserves on the People's Bank of China's balance sheet has gone perfectly sideways. And I mean, some months it's almost exactly perfectly sideways which is an obvious signal of engineering. They're doing something that says, we're not gonna let the level of reserves shrink, foreign reserves on the balance sheet shrink, therefore you know, we're not gonna have any growth on the money side, but we're doing something similar to the Brazilian strategy. We just don't know what it is, and I don't know if we'll ever know what exactly they're doing because the Chinese, unlike the Brazilians, don't report anything anywhere to anybody. You're not the only one that's talking about this. Recently, uh, Russell Napier wrote about it. Um, Ye Shehe, a Bloomberg commentator and analyst, he wrote about it. 
He quoted Duncan Wrigley, who's a chief strategist at Everbright. And then Brad Sester also started talking about it. Jeff, can you kind of summarize what the perception is of what might be happening and then where you differ, if you differ, with what the consensus explanation is regarding the Chinese capital uh, situation? Well, what I think a lot of people are doing is they're looking at the visible portions of flows that, that, are, that we can identify, and they're trying to add them up, you know, how much dollars are going in, how many dollars are coming out. And what they're seeing is that there's, there's a growing and large discrepancy between how they're supposed to be uh, adding up because they're not adding up. We're missing money somewhere. And the way you can explain that missing money is are the Chinese banks hoarding liquidity? Because it kind of looks like they're hoarding dollars because those hoarded dollars don't show up as flows on these capital statements. Are we seeing capital flight? Because remember, back in 2014 and 2015 especially, this dollar destruction, the selling reserves that I'm talking about, in the mainstream media, they never they didn't talk about that at all. They called it capital flight, as if it was you know Chinese billionaires trying to trying to trying to escape the Xi Jinping's track down, uh, crackdown. Uh, and therefore, you know, converting yuan to dollars and then moving those balances offshore. That's not what happened at all. I mean, you can see that just from the fact that almost a trillion dollars in reserve disappeared from the People's Bank of China, disappeared from SAFE, you know, the official Chinese hands. That's not billionaires getting out of China. That's that's obvious dollar destruction. That's not capital flight. That's the euro dollar system saying we're not going to supply dollars to China. No, oh, by the way, that goes through Japan. So this Japanese bank saying we're not going to redistribute dollars to China. And, you know, that's so when we look at the capital discrepancies in 2020, we're starting to see these, you know, these discrepancies become larger and larger and the capital accounts are not adding up. And it sort of looks like 2014 and 15 again, where, you know, is this capital flight again? Except we know that capital flight is really um, not capital flight. It's dollar destruction or at least, you know, dollar denial. The euro dollar system saying, we don't want to, we don't, maybe we don't have dollars, but we don't want to lend dollars to China anymore. Is there a kind of a conclusion to that, Jeff? The conclusion is, you know, some people, a lot of people are saying, well, it looks like, you know, this can't be an outflow problem because Jay Powell has flooded the world with liquidity. The Jay Powell has, has flooded the, the, the world with dollars and therefore there must, if there's a discrepancy, it must be on inflows because, you know, God forbid there could ever be outflows with so much QE, so much bank reserves, so much quote unquote money printing. And, you know, what I said at the conclusion was, look, if it was inflows, then, you know, obviously we could look to places like Japan. and We'd be able to see that the dollar system is behaving correctly, except when we pull up a chart of JPY, we see that ever since March, it's moving in the wrong direction for there to be inflows into China. And if we're going back to what we just said, JPY is going higher, 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 which is the opposite of what you'd expect if Jay Powell had flooded the world with dollars. And therefore, that would make these Chinese, these monetary discrepancies more like outflows or capital flight, which we know from previous experience isn't capital flight, is actually dollar tightness. So all of these signs are saying, okay, China isn't doing the textbook strategy like they did before. They're undertaking a Brazilian strategy, which is we don't want to disrupt the internal money supply, and we don't want to paint a target on our backs about the dollar system, which leads us to, to question what must they be doing, because we know they're doing something, and we can see signs of it in the central bank's balance sheet, the fact that foreign reserves have gone in a straight line for over a year now. And by the way, that straight line actually you know, 
corresponds to major dollar events that we've identified throughout the last year and a half of history. And more than that, we're starting to see these, these discrepancies, these, these odd things, these contradictions show up. Not just me, but most, a lot of other people are starting to wonder what the hell's really going on there, which is consistent with the Brazil strategy. Because what, that's really what the Brazil strategy is, is try to smooth over a temporary problem by not letting anybody know you're doing anything. Jeff Snyder, you can find all his work at Alhambra Investments, at Real Clear Markets, and on Twitter at Jeff Snyder underscore AIP. Jeff, let us bring it back to the United States for a couple of economic accounts, a couple of important ones, and that may give us a hint as to what happened in July, because the reopening boom was had a certain vector. In July, though, it started to inflect towards something less enthusiastic. And we're going to start with an article that uh, you posted at Alhambra Investments on the 16th of September, and it's called Another Key Economic Stumble in August, Pointing Back at July. And you start out by talking about that something changed in July, but you don't say something, you say something changed in July. Yeah, I think, you know, we, we have identified in, in several key markets like oil, the oil can tangle, for example, right around July 21st, something happened. You know, the market started to move in a negative direction. Uh, credit spreads, credit spreads had been improving ever since March, but, you know, around July, they stopped improving. And so something, quote unquote, something happened in mid-July that made people start to think, okay, we, you know, Reopening was going well. Reopening is going, you know, rapid. There's, 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 there seems to be a lot of positive factors here that are accumulating some momentum. And then, all right, start. Let's let's become more cautious. Let's let's be less un, uh, unbridled in optimism. And so, let's talk about the stipends that ran out in July. It was supposed to be a six hundred dollars stipend. Uh, that stopped in July if you were unemployed, but then a new one was implemented that's supposed to be running out right now in this last past week. And do you suspect that that was something that cutting in half of that stipend for unemployed workers in the United States that may have helped tip perhaps something that we saw in retail sales? Yeah, and I think that, you know, the something I used the quotes on wasn't really a mystery. I mean, people had been talking about, it was in the media, it was, you know, economists, everybody was talking about the fact that this, stick, this fiscal stimulus was going to run out um, at the end of July. And so everybody knew that this, I think they even called it a fiscal cliff was going to happen. And nobody knew what was going to happen after, uh, after it had run out. So it was already in mid-July the idea that, okay, something was going to change. We don't know what the government's going to do. We don't know how they're going to react to it. But something's going to change. It's not going to be the same as it was before. And when you go back and start to look at things and think about them more deeply, look at some of the income numbers from the spending numbers, some of the economic numbers, not just in the U.S. and around the world, it starts to become clear that the government payments are a significant part of this reopening Russian enthusiasm. Therefore, anything, anything, a slight change in how the government is going to respond, if, even if the payments are cut from $600 down to $300, for example, that's a change and it's a possible change that goes into your calculation of how the consumers and American workers are going to, are going to react to it. 
they're going to react to it in the same way that uh, people always react to these kinds of things, which is if anybody, if you're familiar with the permanent income hypothesis, for example, what it says is over the long run, people spend based on their perception of where their permanent income is going to be. And so a temporary stipend, if you think that's going to be a permanent, if add to something significant in terms of stimulus, permanent stimulus, you're going to be sorely disappointed because it's not going to do that. There's going to be instead only a temporary effect. So if we start to look at July suspiciously because the government's going to change how it's reacting to the pandemic, and you look at before July as being mostly due to the government's response to the pandemic, you start to get concerned about, okay, what happens after July? Permanent income hypothesis, permanent income hypothesis comes into play where you start to believe that, okay, there's still a lot of unemployed people who are now realizing they're going to get paid less. They're going to start acting differently. Not in a good way, but potentially in a more restricted or more, more negative fashion. And we may be seeing that in retail sales. And this week, the U.S. Census Bureau released uh, data on retail sales in the United States. The American consumer is the world's biggest by far. I think China, who's number two, is two-fifths the size. Japan, number three, is one-fifth the size of the American consumer economy. And retail sales, obviously a key component of that, and they released at least two numbers for that one. The seasonally adjusted one, Jeff, looks fine. It looks like we're back on track. The not seasonally adjusted retail sales number looks terrible. How do you reconcile the two? Well, I don't think the seasonally adjusted numbers looks fine at all. I think it looks terrible. And the reason is because you don't just go back to normal. You don't have a massive hole and just go back to, oh, nothing happened. You don't just go back to the same level you were before. There should be an enormous boost on top of it because you should be making up for lost spending. And so I'm not saying, you know, I look at that seasonally adjusted number and I'm saying, where the hell's the rebound? Where's the upside? It should be, there should be an enormous increase in retail sales far and above what would you know, be this, uh, what would have been this, the uninterrupted trend. And so I think that reconciles easily with an unseasonally adjusted number, which was quite alarming. When you look at the year-over-year -year change, it was essentially zero. And a zero retail sales figure is a bad, bad, bad month. That's essentially what happened in December of 2018 during the, uh, you know, what I call the landmine, uh, the, uh, what essentially confirmed that the U.S. economy was going into a downturn along with the rest of the economy from that period, that point going forward. So if we're equating in this robust V-shaped reopening rebound, one month of retail sales with December of 2018, you have to think something happened in August, something stumbled, something knocked the economy off of its pre-reopening uh, axis that now opens the door to a lot of other questions. Now, you know, it's only one month of data, so we say, okay, it's just this one thing and maybe that's just statistical noise. But then you look around and you see August, July, these things have been repeated in a lot of different places as well. It's not just retail sales, it's not just in the US either. There's, there's legitimate concerns that an inflection, not necessarily into, you know, re-recession, but the, the shape, the, the, uh, the intensity and the slope of the re reopening rebound Maybe something different now. No, I see that also in global PMIs. And if you take all the manufacturing PMIs that are reported each month, for July, the average number was 51. For August, it was 51.1. So frozen, 
no more improvement, no more out, improving outlook. What about industrial production in the United States? Is that confirming what you're also seeing in retail sales? Yeah, I think we saw a significant a stumble in industrial production too. Um, you know, where, you know, there had been, it had already been much less of a robust rebound than something like retail sales. And again, that's easily explained by, you know, the government wasn't bailing out manufacturers in an industry in the same way that it has been bailing out consumers, handing out, handing out uh, essentially helicopter payments without, without regard to legitimacy of those payments. So that's, that I think, is, number one, accounts for the discrepancy between something like retail sales and industrial production. Industry's been slower to recover from the bottom. And then all of a sudden in August, there was basically no recovery at all, almost flat to the where it was in uh, July. It's certainly not much of an increase. And again, the same caveats apply. Maybe it's just a one-month thing and things will get back on track in September. But it's another data point that suggests, okay, this, this possible rolling over motion in July, at the end of July, actually did happen in August. And that raises significant questions about what, do we ha what happens from here? What is... What is the rebound going to look like once uh, the initial reopening momentum starts to fade, starts to wane? Is there enough legitimate economic momentum, recovery momentum, to keep things going forward as fast as we need it to be going forward? Let's not lose sight of the fact that getting back on track isn't good in the first place. Uh, the industrial production figures in the United States go all the way up back to 1919, and today's industrial production numbers are at 101, I believe. And that's about 7% less than they were in February. And if I remember correctly, about 3% less than they were in February of 2008. So we have been stuck for 13 years. In fact, I did a little bit of math, Jeff. Uh, from 1919 to July 2007, anything that could have happened did happen, including Bert the Turtle, Industrial production in the United States compounded at 3.5% per year. If we had stayed on that trend, we would be at 164, but we're at 101. So getting back on trend, that's nothing to aspire to. No, it's the lowest bar possible, and we can't even meet it, right? <laughs> that's the, I think that's the issue. The larger issue, we you know, back to Bert to Turtle, Bank Reserves and Monetary Policy, why can't we even meet the lowest of standard? We can't have a recovery. Why can't we even get back to where we're supposed to be, right? And it raises only substantial questions about what is it that's gone wrong? Why can't we have recoveries anymore? We used to, recovery used to be a foregone conclusion. It was taken for granted because, as Milton Friedman called it, it, was, it was, he called it a plucking cycle, because there were only temporary deviations from trend, and the trend was robust. So you had a temporary shock, a temporary recession, and then you got right back to where you were as if nothing had ever happened. We don't do that anymore. Ever since 2007 now, we have these bigger contractions and no recoveries afterward. And you have to what is it that we're missing? What is it that we're missing from what should be an innate, natural, organic economic process? And then you start to point the finger at all of the, you know, all the evidence is pointing the fingers at Jay Powell and Bert the Turtle. Well, I'd say it's pointing the finger at banks, private enterprise, not creating credit because they are risk averse. They don't see any return. And the people in charge that should assist in some fashion uh, have lost the thread. 
Yeah, and I th- well, that's that's the point. We're all we're, we're all told that the the Federal Reserve has got this money thing covered. They got it covered. You're right. It's the banking system that's the problem. But that's not what the Fed says. The Fed says, "Don't worry about it. We've got it handled." And when if the banking system is the problem and the Fed isn't fixing the problem, it is still the Fed's problem because the Fed is supposed to fix the problem. And that's really what it is. Instead, the Fed fixes the problem, or at least tries to tell you it's fixing the problem with its duck and cover strategy. Whereas, okay, we're going to increase the level of bank reserves, whether or not the system needs bank reserves or not. doesn't matter. We don't care because we're just trying to signal to everybody to just get under your desk, put your, heads, put your hands over your head, and just, just be happy that you, this will allow you to survive and everything will be, everything will be great in, in a, you know, a short amount of time. That's a great image to end the show with, Jeff. I hope you have a great weekend, and let's do this again next week. All right, take care, Amina.